I'm assuming that yes. Testing. Well, there you go. You're talking to my now is it on? Oh. <laughs> All right, so this is from Father Mark. So this time where you haven't been able to do stuff, where you've had to sit over there, this is a time that's given God the opportunity to tell you things that you uh, would not have had the moment of not being busy to hear. boldness you need this morning to speak and ask for it. Because Jesus promised that what, you know, if you ask for uh, a, a, a piece of bread, would God give you a scorpion? Whatever you ask. You have a word. I'm just standing okay. right no, over. No, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> just right up underneath my nose. Oh, how about that one? <laughs> There is somebody going through something, and um, God wants you to know that he makes no mistakes. Mm -hmm. You're going through it because of what you have to deal with at, in the light at the end of the tunnel. This is just practice. Mm -hmm. Hang in there. It would all work itself out. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For where there is unity, there is strength. The table is spread and the feast of the Lord is going on. We are waiting for the table to be spread when it's already spread. Come to the table and eat. The table is spread and the feast of the Lord is going on. Hallelujah. So while Martha was sharing her word, I heard you're going through it to rule it. Mm. Mm. Amen. Good word. Look, man. Come on, man. What, 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 is, what is this? Your leg's broke, not your arm, okay? Come on, get it up. <laughs> <laughs> My friend. <laughs> so in coming this morning, I again was just praying, asking the Lord if he had a word for anyone. And what I heard was, be someone in red. And so I happened to look around and I saw you over there in red. Don't be looking around. <laughs> I was drawn over there, and what, what I, the word I was hearing was um, pervasive, is the Lord's pervasive uh, activity in your life. 
a history of you walking with him. And what I was seeing, it was like a, a piece of furniture that had a, uh, like a covering on it, almost like it had been um, painted. And it was being, it's like the Lord was taking that off. So to reveal a beauty underneath it that had not been seen for a long time. And uh, if this speaks to you, there was this sense that there is a searching that has um, uh, searching for more of God, searching for more, searching for more, and uh, sometimes not being able to even know what you're looking at, even to know the questions to ask and what you're looking for. And there was this wonderful kind of stripping that the Lord was doing to reveal a beauty for you to see things in a different way, see things uh, in a different light, and it was a, it was a glorious discovery. It was such a such a joy that was bubbling up as that revelation was becoming more and more uh, clear and the fact of the Lord delighting in you in your search mm. and not to ever feel that uh, that that searching and that asking has not gone without uh, the Lord being so pleased because that's how he's drawing you so if that speaks to you Let us take heed of the reading from the scripture. Good morning. Well, <laughs> one of those one of those days. Huh? Praise God. I love that prayer that Deacon just prayed for the children, and I think really that prayer could be for each one of us. Amen. Amen. Let us not lose our joy, no matter what's going on. And so I wanted to start this morning. We actually came, we had a couple of milestones that occurred this last week that um, I just thought I should bring to mind, especially as we celebrate this Labor Day, and I pray that it's, it will be and is, has been a restful weekend for you. Three years ago, as of this last Tuesday, the church began the food pantry in which we began to reach out and provide not just food to the neighborhood, but my prayer is a place to come, a safe place, a place where they might see a smiling face, they would be prayed for, that they would be invited to the Lord's table. And as of this Tuesday, we have in three years distributed right at 100,000 pounds of food, which is just a fun fact. That's the weight of the Vulcan statue. So, so we basically <laughs> distributed the Vulcan statue. There you go. Um, at the cost to the church, to you, to everyone who gives and everyone who comes and volunteers their time and works $15,000. And it continues to grow. This, the month of July, we provided food to 423 families, and that's been our largest um, number yet. I, actually, I should, I should have said 423 persons. So 
Um, I just want to thank everyone who's been faithful and everyone who's felt called to do that and has provided money, prayers, physical labor. Um, and I just pray we would continue to do that. Amen? Well, a couple things came to my mind as I was working on the sermon. And I always, if I know I'm going to preach, I kind of read the scriptures several times. I begin praying about them. And the first thing I will tell you is I forgot to check the CEC revised lectionary. So the Old Testament reading that I read was the Deuterocanonical book known as Ecclesiasticus or also the Wisdom of Sirach. And so I'm actually going to be talking about that a little bit, so I'll actually have to read that, So because you haven't heard that yet. Um, but two things really stuck in my mind, and I really began to pray about those and seek the Lord. And the first one was a word. I'm going to kind of deal with that first. And the second one was today's gospel message. We only find that gospel message in the gospel of Luke. And um, so we're going to look at that, and, and hopefully I'll connect the two, and I won't, I won't lose everybody getting there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a peculiar people, to be set apart for your purposes. And Lord, as we hear your holy word, pray, Lord, that we'd have ears and hearts that would desire to hear what you have to say for us, to us, that we might walk by faith and that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the word that was stuck in my mind and kept coming back and back again is the word pride. Indeed, first of the deadly sins, pride. And so as I often do, I said, well, I'm going to look up that word because I want to kind of know what it's about. And so here's what I found when I picked up one of the kids' dictionaries out of the girls' room this is from the Webster's New Revised Student Dictionary. Here's the definition of pride. Pride is pleasure in your own abilities, achievements, and possessions, period. So, well, that's not too bad. I don't know why that would be a deadly sin, right? It doesn't seem too, too awful to me. Then I went back a couple of hundred years, and I picked up Noah Webster's Dictionary from 1828. And here's what Noah Webster said pride is. Pride is inordinate self-esteem, unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in the contempt of others. Wow. First definition, probably a little nicer, right? A little, little. And here's the incredible thing. Noah Webster, at the very end of that, then gives the 16th proverb. Pride goes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. I want to start off just looking for a minute as we come into the gospel today. I believe the reason the Lord put pride on my heart is because as I look around at the world today, 
I believe we have a disease in our society and our culture, and it is the disease of pride. You can't help but listen to the news or go on the internet and not see people absolutely certain that their position is absolutely right and that it is so right that it doesn't matter how they speak to or about other people. In fact, last Sunday as I left, I went to five points, went through five points west and we had to go somewhere and there was a crowd, there was some sort of a demonstration, and they were shouting on things I'm not going to repeat, but they weren't nice. And in fact, yesterday when I looked at the, at the news, there was some city, I believe it's in Boston, and the police are getting ready for riots because two opposing groups with opposing ideas are about to confront one another. But as King Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun, Amen. The Hebrew word for pride is geva or geon. It's used 61 times in the Old Testament. It means haughty, arrogant, cynical, insensitive to the needs of others, and presumptive. Pride is both an attitude as well as how we conduct ourselves. It is the sin of shifting our ultimate confidence from God to ourselves. I know that I'm right, and here I will stand no matter what. I will not trust God. I will not hear from him. I cannot hear anything that you have to say because I'm right. That is the sin of pride. And sadly, it is our fallen human nature. In this morning's prayer, it's a wonderful prayer. It says... In that second line, Lord, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Now, grafting is something that farmers or actually orchards, orchardmen, is that a term? Farmers that keep trees. They graft, right? And so what they do is they will take a strong tree, a tree known for its strength and its resistance to... Um, disease or whatever, and they will graft into it the thing, the fruit that they want. You see, we cannot love God's name outside of Him through His Holy Spirit working in us. I cannot just choose to love God and make that happen. Ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that will bring me to that place. And that I pray as our prayer each day, Lord, let me die a little more to myself and be found more and more in you. So that brings us to the gospel today. The gospel begins by saying that Jesus is invited to the house of a prominent Pharisee. And what we didn't read today is he's only going to be there a few minutes and he's already going to ruffle some feathers. He's going to heal somebody, okay? He's going to heal a man with dropsy. And I'm not, still not sure, even though I did some research, still not sure what dropsy is. It has to do with some sort of inflammation or retaining water or something. 
But Jesus heals him. Jesus asks the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But no one will answer him. Jesus then will take the man, heal him, and send him away. And then he will address them. If your lamb or your ox falls into a well on the Sabbath day, who among you doesn't hurry to pull it out? And they could not answer. One of the things that Jesus knows right away is that they're watching him. And so the first thing I want to do this morning, just for a minute, is to look at the Pharisees because I don't, I've never really fully understood the Pharisees, so I actually did some time kind of looking at the Pharisees and Jewish culture at that time. And the first thing we need to know is a wedding feast, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a wedding feast. A wedding feast was kind of the pinnacle of everything going on in society at that time. Their life centered around temple worship. If you were in Jerusalem or the synagogue, if you were on the outskirts, but even then it was still about the temple. But societal life, culture centered around a wedding feast. That was the time that people all gathered together in a social environment to talk to one another, to work out business deals and all kinds of other things. And so Jesus chooses that period of time, that social event that the Pharisees would have known well, that they would have been honored guests at. Okay, Because one of the things I found out, even during the height of the Pharisees, there were only about 6,000 of them in all Jerusalem. In fact, they had a name for themselves, and it wasn't Pharisees, it was called the Brotherhood. And so we get that whole secret handshake kind of thing going on. One historian says that the Pharisees were the best and the worst that the Israelites had to offer. And the sad thing is, I think we can kind of see them as completely the other, but I think we can be very guilty of being Pharisees ourselves. So here's what the Pharisees were about. During the second temple period, which is going to be about 600 years after Herod's temple is built and they begin to worship again in the temple, that period is going to be the period when the Pharisees come into existence and they grow. And why do they grow? Well, the Israelites have been incessantly bombarded by foreign cultures. First it's the Persians, then it's the Greeks, and then it's the Romans, and the Pharisees were the protectors of the faith. They were the ones that kept the faith pure. And one of the ways they did that was by adding rule upon rule upon rule, in which they also became the ones that were everyone's judge. You see, although their motivations were good and pure, to keep God's law, to keep his temple pure, they began to become prideful. They began to look down on all the others around them and forgot that God had called them first and foremost to serve him and to serve his people. And they became a group that simply protected their own place. And so this is the group that Jesus speaks to today as he enters into this house and sits down for Sabbath. 
Now, I said I'm going to talk a little bit about um, that deuterocanonical book, but I'm not going to get a whole bunch into it. Except this, it was written by a man by the name of Jeshua ben Sirah, or Jesus, son of Sirach. All right, and then it'll eventually get the name Ecclesiasticus. He was a wealthy man who lived about 200 years before Jesus was born. So he's born right into this culture that Jesus is going to come into um, as he brings this parable today. He was a wealthy man, but he was a man who loved the Lord and studied the Word of God. And the interesting thing about this letter or this book is it is actually introduced by his grandson. After he's long gone, his grandson will translate the book from Hebrew into Greek. And his grandson says that the whole purpose for his grandfather writing this book was to pass down the truths of God's word. So it's kind of like a devotional or a commentary. And here's what he says about pride. Pride is odious to both God and man. For the beginning of man's pride is to separate himself from the Lord and to rebel against his creator. For the beginning of pride is sin. Jesus has watched in the parable this morning as he enjoys the Sabbath meal. He's watched by those who sought the best seat. And I would say, how often do we seek the best seat? I know it's difficult. For me, it was, that was my struggle with looking at this parable. How does that apply to me? Because I don't really understand that world. I know when I go to a wedding, it's pretty well defined. They got the row up front. That's the wedding party. Everybody else sits somewhere else, right? But evidently, in Jesus' day, there was jockeying for that seat. And I would say to you that our pride can manifest itself in a thousand little ways. While we might not understand that, how often do we look to make ourselves look good? By maybe comparing ourselves with other people. I've been there. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I might be bad, but I'm, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. How often do we make ourselves look good by telling little lies, right? Embellishing the truth. How often do we make ourselves look good by our piety? Much like the Pharisees. I know what I know what I know, and I really don't care to hear what you have to say. The Bible offers one cure for the disease of pride, and it is humility. Humility is seeing ourselves as we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior. And it is remembering always that we too turned away and have spurned God. 
In Ephesians 2.12, Paul reminds us, remember that at that time, you also were separated from Christ. Aliens, without hope and without God in the world. There was a time that we didn't know the truth, that we weren't walking in the truth. How quickly we forget. In both James's letter and 1 Peter, they both quote Proverbs 3.34. And if we were going to have a memory verse, this would be it for today. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That one short verse is used both in the Old Testament and at least twice in the New Testament. God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want God opposing me. But he gives grace to the humble, to those that realize we always need him. We always need him. And those around us, whoever it is that we meet, they need him also. It doesn't mean that we don't stand for truth, but it means that we're careful how we do it. We don't, we're not presumptuous. We're not judgmental. That was why the Pharisees were considered the best and the worst, They protected the truth. The problem is they forgot from where they came. And we can do that also. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, we read this. Do nothing through rivalry or vain conceit. On the contrary, Let each of you gently consider the others as more important than yourselves. Do not seek your own interest, but rather that of others. Let what was seen in Christ Jesus be seen in you. 1978, a man by the name of Donald Craybill wrote a book, and the title of that book became kind of a statement within the church, and the book was called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And his contention in that book is that the kingdom of God is oftentimes upside down from what we see in the world around us. In a few minutes as we celebrate the Eucharist, one line in there reminds us that we're a people set apart. We are called to be a peculiar people. Not a self-righteous people. We're not called to be Pharisees. But we're called to be a people that looks different than the world in that we love when no one else will. Jesus calls us to downward mobility in the midst of a world that says you need more. You need to be right. You need to move up the ladder. He invites us to take the lowly seats We are called to defer to others happily, joyfully even, yielding the good seats. Serving, not jockeying for seats, is to be our occupation. For those who exalt themselves will have a back seat in God's reign. Those who confess their pride and quietly serve others will be exalted in the upside-down kingdom. In fact, In verse 11 of this morning's gospel, Jesus proclaims, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. If we choose the way of pride in this life, we will ultimately be humbled. And being humbled is a lot more negative than having humility, isn't it? Being humbled means somebody has to impose humility on me. That's generally not a good thing. Has anybody ever been humbled? Yeah. We have, any of us that have children, we've probably been humbled a time or two. Anybody that's married ever been humbled? But if we choose the way of humility, as Christ was lowly and humble, even though he had every right, right to reign over those Pharisees that he sat at supper with, if we choose that way, then we will be exalted. The last thing I'd like to speak just for a moment about is the rest of that gospel. Verses 12 through 14. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus begins to talk about the master of the feast and who that master will invite. And I had a really hard time. One of the things that Father Mark would probably share and anyone else that preaches, one of the things we do is we kind of go back and we look at people that have preached before. And one of the things we like to depend on are kind of the church fathers because it's kind of a way of grounding what we're saying. But the interesting thing is I couldn't find a whole lot about the second part of this parable. And so I began praying about it. And the Lord put a couple of things on my heart. One, our humility must go beyond how we see ourselves. It must go beyond just giving up our pride. It must affect our attitude and our actions toward others. We must become selfless. And I don't know about you, that's a difficult thing for me. This last week on Tuesday, a few of us were talking after the Eucharist and when we celebrate the Eucharist on Tuesday, it can kind of be difficult because we have a lot of people that come in during the middle of it, some at the end. Some don't seem really to have any idea what they're doing, but they want communion. And there's a Pharisee in me that would love to just draw a line, a red line up here, you know, only, these, only the washed or admitted and so forth, right? But the Lord reminded me as I was praying about that, in some ways, we, the church, we're the master of the feast. We get to invite people into this place, not only on Sunday, but each and every day of the week. We get to invite people in. Now, we may, in our hearts, have this thing where there's only certain people we want to invite. But Jesus is clearly saying Invite everyone. Invite those people that can give you nothing, that can offer nothing to this church. They're not going to put a bunch of money in the plate. They're not going to become benefactors probably. You don't worry about that. You invite because you've been invited. You've been invited when you were just like them. And we might say, well, I was never like that. I was never unclean or whatever. But each and every one of us 
as that part of us that was just like that. So I believe the call that God is putting on our hearts is to go out, as Hebrews 13 says, and love others. Entertain strangers as if they might be angels, because we don't know, right? And to remember the mistreated. And so my prayer is that we will continue to grow as a church in our desire to see the lost and the lonely and the sick and the addicted healed and brought to the Lord's table. That though they may come not understanding, He would open their eyes and He would begin the work that He can only do in their hearts. Because it's not about us. It's not about us. I leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is a letter that he wrote to a friend, his friend, because I don't, one of the things I know in myself, I, I can get burdened by my pride because I know God's wanting to work that out of me and I don't give certain things up very easily. And one of C.S. Lewis's friends had written him and asked him about the sin of pride. And here's C.S. Lewis's response. Yes, pride is a perpetual nagging temptation Keep on knocking it in the head. But don't be too worried about it. As long as one knows one is proud, one is safe from the worst form of pride. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and that you're always, always speaking to us. So Holy Spirit, pray that you would have your way in our hearts that we would be a humble people, that we would be a people that knows how to love like you love. Lord, change whatever it is that you need to in our hearts to bring us to that place that we might serve you more fully and that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you.